First John chapter 5, as we are continuing our look at this incredible letter on Sunday morning, in a series we've entitled, That You May Know, we are answering the question or assuring the individual of their salvation in Jesus Christ. We are helping you discover for yourself if you are truly in Christ. For John wrote the Gospel of John so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that you would believe on Him. He followed up that Gospel with this letter stating, if you will read this letter, I will help you understand and help you know that you are truly in the faith. The Bible warns us very clearly that there are those who will stand before God at that moment after the rapture has occurred or standing before God after they had died, and they will think that they are saved. And Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and through 23, that there are many who will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. For they had gone through life with the false sense of security of thinking that they had salvation in Jesus Christ, only to discover at that moment that they did not know him and Christ did not know them. A terrifying position to be in, to say the least. After a recent survey was taken earlier this year, we discovered that only about 4% of those who, I'm sorry, about 10% of those who truly claim to be Christians are actually Christians. It's a scary statistic, but it sure answers a lot of questions. And so we embarked on this study together to answer that question, as he makes it clear here in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote this. That's why we're looking at this together. I want our church and each and every one of you to know for certain that you are saved and that you have eternal life. And today we're going to talk about that phrase. We're going to define it for you and help explain it to you. And that is, what does it mean to have eternal life? What is eternal life and what does it look like and how does it play out? And what is it in contrast to? If I have eternal life, that means before I came to Christ, I didn't have eternal life. So what state was I in at that moment? That's a very important question to explore also, which our text will do for us this morning. And as we have worked through 1 John together on Sunday mornings, we have seen that John has given us three tests in which to take. He said, one who is truly born again, question number one, will live like Jesus lived. You will have a a desire and a sense to live as Christ had lived in righteousness and in holiness. You're going to want to be like your heavenly father in that regard. As Peter said, be holy for I am holy, quoting the book of Leviticus, speaking of God. We're going to want to reflect the character and the nature of our heavenly father and his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, John says that if you are truly born again, you are going to love like Jesus loved. 
that you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus has instructed us to and commanded us to do. And as a result, you will discover that you have eternal life. For only one who has eternal life and has experienced that new birth that, and have become that new creation is going to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. And thirdly, one who is truly born again is going to think like Jesus thinks. We're going to have a right theological understanding of who God is. And that is to contrast a historical event that was taking place at the time that this letter was written that is being addressed by this letter also, and that is a, an exodus, a departure, an apostasy from the true body of Christ of those who were not truly saved but now are being persuaded and being uh, lured away by false teachers and they begin to embrace a Jesus that the Bible has not described for us. It's happening today. And we've said this many times. For example, a Jehovah's Witness will tell you that they believe in Jesus Christ, but when you get down to the definition of their understanding of Jesus, you will discover that it is much different than your understanding. The same with a Mormon, etc. They will also tell you that they believe in Jesus Christ, but when you begin to talk to them about Jesus, you will discover very quickly that they have a different Jesus than you do. And as a result, you'll discover that the Jesus that they have created is a Jesus that is incapable of saving them. They have turned from the true and authentic gospel to one that cannot and is completely incapable of transforming anyone. And as we left last week, as we were looking at the first five verses of 1 John, we left with these two verses, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? For it is only one who truly believes in Jesus Christ that has overcome the world. It is through Christ that we are capable of overcoming the world because he himself overcame the world. And that's what we explored last week together. And now John, as he's getting ready to conclude this letter to the church, he wants to reiterate once again who the, who the true identity of Christ actually is. And so he asks us a question in verse 9, if you look there quickly with me. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God. If I were to say to you that this week I had to testify, what would come to your mind? Well, I had to go to court. I was called to the witness box. They swore me in. I then was questioned by the attorneys. I gave a statement, a witness on behalf or against the plaintiff of the case. It brings you into a legal setting. And God is asking us, John is asking us, if we believe the testimony of men to take away an individual's freedom and possibly even their life in certain circumstances, 
is it not better that we uh, truly then consider the testimony of God himself greater than even the testimony of men? And that's the question that John is asking us. And he says, God has testified on behalf of his son, Jesus Christ. And he'll state for us what that testimony is and how God showed us and demonstrated for us that Jesus is truly the Son of God. That he was God incarnate. 100% man and 100% God all at the exact same time. It's called the hyperstatic union of Jesus Christ. Okay, big word. God and man in one, the person Christ. For the identity of that Christ had been strictly and very stringently refuted by those who were in the cult drawing people away from the true body of Christ. For those who were drawing the people away from the true body of Christ believed that Jesus himself could not have any material physical characters whatsoever because in their mind all physical matter was evil. So they believe that uh, he was born a man, and then at a certain point in time, this, the deity of God came upon him, and then before he died, the deity of God left him, and then the physical body died. Now you say, well, is that really that big of a deal? Absolutely. Absolutely. For the apostolic teaching of the identity of Jesus Christ was absolutely clear that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God from the time he was born to the time he gave up his spirit and died. And as a result, they were changing the characteristic of Christ and denying the doctrine of the incarnation, that God came in flesh on behalf of his creation to die on its behalf, and to be raised on the third day. And so John's saying, now I want you to listen to the witness of God. If you are so entailed to listen to the witness of man, how much greater then is the witness and the testimony of God concerning the person of Jesus Christ? So the question then becomes, how did God testify on behalf of his son to identify his son to truly be the son of God? Verse 6, and this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So three witnesses are now called to the stand. And these are the witnesses that God has provided to show and to demonstrate the true authentic nature of Jesus Christ. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. So identifying what John means by each of these is, is necessary to truly understand the impact of what he is saying here to help us understand who Christ actually is. Now let us be certain. The Bible warns us that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, that there, were, there will be many who come and say, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the Anointed One. There are many who are going to be false messiahs, and therefore we need to know the true from the false. 
In fact, it will climax with the arrival of one that the Bible calls the Antichrist, who stands in opposition to all that God is. As a Christian, we need to know the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have a proper theological understanding of who God is. When we do so, when we have a proper theological understanding of who God is, we then understand His nature, His character, and who He is. And all theology derives from that nature, that character, that essence of God. So then we know truth from error because we know who God is. And as a result, then therefore we can be certain of the true identity of Jesus Christ. Now, God's saying that I've given you three witnesses. The water, the blood, and the spirit. The water undoubtedly is referring to his baptism. Though Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, his ministry on earth technically did not start until he presented himself to John the Baptist to be baptized. And at that moment then, the Spirit came upon him, and therefore his ministry began. It's not that he received the spirit of complete deity at that time. He simply received the Holy Spirit and through the power of the Holy Spirit was able to do all that he did. And at the moment that he presented himself to John the Baptist to be baptized, I'm sure you remember that John saw him coming from afar and told his disciples that this is it. Here comes the Lamb of God. This is the one we've been waiting for. One in whom sandals I am not worthy to loosen. And when he came to John, John said, listen, it's not right for me to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, let all righteousness be fulfilled. And John the Baptist then proceeded to baptize him. And at the moment he did, the voice from God the Father was heard. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit came upon him in the form of a dove And the Son, the Lamb of God, stood before John. And at that moment, you get in the picture of the Trinity, a beautiful illustration of all three persons of the Trinity working in uh, concession one with another. And so John says, at that moment, God testified to all of us that this is the Son of God. When he came by water. Then he came by blood. The blood undoubtedly refers to when Christ was crucified. At that moment, there were various witnesses taking place that are found within the book of Matthew to once again point to the fact that he was truly the Son of God. For example, darkness overshadowed the sun and an eclipse came upon it. And the darkness remained at the noontime of that day for three hours. An earthquake occurred. The temple veil was ripped in two from top to bottom. There was a partial resurrection of the saints in Matthew 27, 52, and 53. One of the most unusual uh, and curious verses of Matthew's gospel. It said not only did he come forward at the time of the resurrection, but others did also. And then there was the witness of the Roman soldier, the centurion who was stationed before Christ, 
whose sole purpose of being there was not only to make sure that the Roman soldiers executed Christ properly, but did you know the Roman centurion who was in charge was never supposed to remove his eyes from the individual who had just been crucified? For the Roman authority wanted to know exactly at the moment in which Christ died so they could record it and they could verify it and that they could reassure the religious leaders. And when the life of the individuals next to Jesus continued in a prolonged status that required them to break their legs so they wouldn't die on the Passover, when they came to Jesus and they discovered he was already dead, they shoved a spear into his heart and blood and water flowed. But the centurion stood there and watched. And he witnessed and heard everything that Christ had said and done at that moment. And he came to the acknowledgement that this was the Son of God. Through these two events, John is saying that we know that we have the true Christ. He is saying these are two of the witnesses that God has given us for us to know that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. John himself further demonstrated his deity in the Gospel of John by stating that his genealogy, verses 1 through 18... As you see that Matthew and Luke's gospel start with genealogies, one from Joseph, one from Mary, John starts it in a completely different manner. He starts it from the perspective of God and says, this is who Jesus is. He was the word that was with God and was God from the beginning. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 114. And John is stating for us very clearly that this is the testimony that will allow us to understand who the actual Christ is and his authentic identity. But then there is the Spirit. The Spirit of God who was given to Jesus at the moment of his baptism. The Spirit who was with him through his entire ministry. The Spirit who arrived just as Jesus said he would. For Jesus told his disciples that when I go and I ascend back to my Father, I will send the Spirit to you, Acts chapter 1. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit arrives just as Christ said he would. Then the Spirit continued his work through the disciples in the same manner in which he worked through Christ. And then he began to work in the lives of those who came to faith through the preaching of the gospel of the disciples. And it's just continued on ever since until the Lord returns. But as Paul wrote in Romans 8.11, he says, this spirit whom raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that has been given to you and I. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. 
And this spirit testifies to the true nature, the true identity of Jesus Christ. So we have, as our witnesses, the water, the time of baptism, the blood, the time of his crucifixion, and the spirit. All three of these are testifying on behalf of God, pointing to the true identity of the Son of God. Now we know that in Levitical law that two or three witnesses are needed for the sentencing or the convicting of any individual. Jesus now, or I should say, God is giving us three witnesses on behalf of Jesus Christ and saying, this is who the true, authentic Christ is. And in him, you will overcome the world because he himself has overcome the world, for he truly is the Son of God. As verse 7 then states, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. We now have to address a textual variant in the Bible. It's called the Johanne Kama. It is a phrase that you will find in the King James Bible and in the New King James Bible that states very clearly that these are the words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It is the verse 7 of the King James and the New King James Bible where it appears in the newer translations to be omitted, and this has caused great concerns amongst Christians today. Why has this verse appeared to be omitted from the text? The reason it is not included in the newer translations is because the newer translations look at a vast array of manuscripts and analyze those manuscripts by a process called textual criticism. When the King James Bible was translated, it was translated in 1611, and it was based upon a Greek text that was created and written by a man named Desiderius Erasmus, there in Oxford, England. It was the first New Testament Greek source And what he did is he put one compiled Greek source together of the entire New Testament. On the basis of that Greek text, it was the standard known as the Texas Receptus. It was the standard used for over 400 years. However, though, Desiderius Erasmus only had six Greek manuscripts to work from. And out of those six Greek manuscripts, he compiled this Greek New Testament called the Texas Receptus. Now, that's a little misleading because the Texas Receptus has grown since, and there isn't just one Texas Recepti, there's actually 30. But this was the standard. And so they took the best information that they had at the time by the hands of this uh, individual, Desiderius Erasmus, and they used it, the King James translators used it, and this phrase was included. 
Today, the Greek text that the New Testament is based upon is called the Nestle Allen 28, 28th Revision. The Nestle Allen 28 Revision isn't a, a compilation of six Greek manuscripts. Can anybody tell me or think about how many Greek manuscripts are used to create the Nestle Allen 28? That's a good guess, but you're wrong. 5,745. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Greek manuscripts, and these are only the Greek ones that we have. We have many, many others in different language, Coptic, Slavonic, Armenian, etc. We have 5,700 copies of manuscripts that are now compiled in the new Nestle Allen 28. When the research is done in textual criticism, which is an application of interpretation, it's an application, it's a science, and how to find out by all the different manuscripts we have, how uh, were they originally written? Because all we have is copies. We have 5,700 some copies, and we have to determine from them what the original actually said. And the process of doing so is called textual criticism. And we have discovered since then that verse 7, as it is found in the King James, New King James, was an added addition by a scribal hand that we don't even find until the 12th century. We find it again in the 14th and we find it again in the 16th. Before 400 AD and the creation of the um, Latin uh, Vulgate, We do not find it in any of the manuscripts that we have of 1 John anywhere before 400 AD. And then all of a sudden it appeared in the Latin Vulgate. That would cause concern of its authentication. Does this phrase actually exist? Was it in the originals or was it a scribal hand that was put in later? And I believe after looking at the, the evidence that this was something, this verse was um, added later to our text and wasn't in the original authentic letter that John wrote. And one of the greatest witnesses of this is the early church. The early church was constantly being challenged on the aspect of the deity of Christ, Arianism, or the Trinity itself. And when the church, uh, the early church fathers refuted their doctrinal denial of the deity of Christ and the doctrinal denial of the Trinity, not one of them, not one, quoted 1 John 5, 7, that is found in the King James, New King James Bible. If they had it, do you think that they would use it? Absolutely, because it's a clear statement of the Trinity. And so this isn't an issue of uh, 
of malice or anything like that. The new, t- the new uh, versions, the new translations, this isn't an issue of distorting or corrupting God's word. It is an issue based on the fact of what the evidence says. For an ounce of evidence is worth more than a pound of presumption. And so we have the Trinity found in the New Testament without that verse. We can defend the Trinity without that verse. But the King James translators, with the resources they had, inserted this, and they did so properly. Because that's what they had at the time. But again, we have so much more now. And now we just look at it and we examine all that we have, the 5,700 instead of just the six that Desiderius Erasmus had. And, and you may think like, well, wow, that's such a small sample size. Why did he ever start with such a sample size? Do you think that when he wrote it in the 1400s, six uh, manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek and in other languages was skimpy? They didn't have UPS. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have telecommunications. They didn't have any of that. I think it's amazing that he had that many. And so this is one of the reasons that textual criticism is done to give you the most proper translation of the Bible that you can. Now, I've given you way more information than you probably ever wanted, but I had to address that because, again, I think the New King James, King James Bible are fantastic translations but we have to understand them in the context in which they were created. And I'm not necessarily saying newer is better. I want to go back to the very oldest, closest manuscript to the time of the disciples that we can. And because anybody tell us, me this morning, what the oldest manuscript that we have currently in Greek of the New Testament? It was just found. That's why I asked. I thought maybe you had seen it. We are all the way back now to 69 AD. That's when the apostles were living. That's incredible to think of the resources we have concerning the Bible. But what John is saying here is that these three agree and testify on behalf of God, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, verse 7. These three are in agreement. It's a legal term. They are all saying the same thing. They are all pointing to the authentic Christ in the apostolic understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I should say verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, he asked this question, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he who has been born concerning the son, his son and whoever believes in his son, in the son of God, has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If I was an attorney and I was going before a court and before a jury and I had to prove my defendant innocent of a crime that he is being uh, you know, sentenced with, convicted of, and I was given... A, a group of witnesses that say that they had all seen or heard what had happened and they can testify on his behalf. And so as I go through the witness, 
I have to pick the most credible witnesses out of them to testify on his behalf. For example, if I'm interviewing the witnesses and I discover that this one guy said, yeah, I saw everything and for 10 bucks more I can make it look like any way you want it to be. Would you consider him a credible witness? If I came to the next person and I said, oh, were you a witness to the crime? He says, oh, yes, I was a witness to the crime. I heard everything. What, what, wait a minute, you heard everything? Yeah, I heard everything. I'm blind and I was sitting on my porch. Would he be a witness that you put forward? Thinking that the defense attorney was going to pick their testimonies apart? If man's witness can be flawed based upon his credibility, how much more then should we embrace the witness of God whose credibility is impeccable? A God who himself says, I cannot lie. I'm always truthful. And these are the witnesses that I have put forward to show and to demonstrate who the actual person of Jesus Christ is. And if you accept men's witness on behalf of an individual, sentencing him or or pardoning him from the crime, how much more then should we look to the witness of God for that testimony? I like what William McDonald said when he wrote, In everyday life, we consistently accept the word of our fellow men. If we did not, business would be at a standstill and social life would be impossible. We accept the testimony of men who may be mistaken and who may be deceivers. Now, if we do this in everyday life, how much more should we trust the word of God who cannot fail and cannot lie? It is most unreasonable not to believe God in his witness. I mean, for his witness is absolutely credible. And so then John asks in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has this same testimony within himself. For if you have believed in him, you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation, and that testimony of authenticity and that witness now are carried within you, John is saying. But if whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God who is incapable of lying being called a liar by those who reject the witness of God. Undoubtedly, he's speaking of those individuals that were leaving and going after the wisdom of man in this newfounded cult. And John's saying, oh, they're just simply denying the witness of God himself and therefore calling God a liar in the process. And John says the problem is not with God. The problem is with them. In their rebellion against God's witness and therefore calling him a liar, they state and show that it's not an issue of them that they cannot believe. It's an issue of them that they will not believe. And this is a huge difference. When you present Christ to someone, they will often say, I I can't believe in what you're saying. But like Spurgeon said, he often wondered if they're actually saying, I won't believe in what you are saying. A defiance to the evidence that is put forward. Listen to what Spurgeon had to say. 
What if one says, well, I want to believe, but I can't? Well, Spurgeon answered such a one. He says, hearken, O unbeliever, you have said, I cannot believe, but it would be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. The mischief lies there. Your unbelief is your fault, Spurgeon says, not your misfortune. It's a disease, but it's also a crime. It's a terrible source of misery to you. But it just, justly so, for it is an atrocity or atrocious offense, atrocious, excuse me, offense against God. I'm sorry, against the God of truth. I won't believe. A stubborn rebellion against God. He went on to say, John here exposes the great sin of unbelief. Most everyone who refuses to believe God in the full sense of the word believe doesn't intend to call God a liar, but they do it nonetheless. The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet, according to my text, as he's reading this text, And indeed, according to the whole tenor of scriptures, unbelief is giving of God the lie and what can be worse. I believe that it is possible for everyone to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I also believe that they can willfully resist the invitation that God gives them. And as a result, they put themselves in a very dangerous position. For Moses tells us that in his dealing with Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart often against God. God said, let my people go. Moses came to Pharaoh on God's behalf, and Pharaoh continued to resist what God desired him to do. And therefore, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. But then the tenor changes, where then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. As Pharaoh came to a point of being hardened against God to the point where God knew that he wasn't going to return, God's just simply solidified. And there are two different words in the Hebrew. The first word for hardened is him hardening himself against God. And the second word for hardening is God firming his previous, that man's previous decision. And so John is now saying, you call God a liar and you won't believe. And that was Spurgeon's takeaway from this also. Therefore, you're putting yourself in a very precarious position because you could harden yourself to the point where you just, the gospel just washes over you and you just turn away from it, etc. Be very careful of this. I believe this is what the Bible considers the sin that is unforgivable the rejection of Jesus Christ, the blasphemy of the Spirit. And there are others who would disagree with me on these terms, but I think the Scripture is clear. And as a result, we call God a liar by resisting the witnesses that He has given us. And as a result, we put ourselves in a very dire position before God. He says here very clearly In verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And then he goes on, whoever does not believe again has made him a liar. Why? Because he has not, 
believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. The word has gives us the impression that he had the capability, but refused to do so. He has not believed. He chose not to believe. And as a result, he has walked away from the one who can save him. And then in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. This eternal life allows us to become those who overcome the world. And let's remind ourselves what that means. You and I who are found in Christ Jesus have been given eternal life and have overcome the world. The dominion of Satan himself as the ruler of this world has now been um, overthrown by the work of Jesus Christ. And when I put my faith and trust in that work, I therefore overcome his dominion upon me. I not only escape the dominion of Satan over my life, but I also escape the wrath of God that is upon me for my unbelief. But now that I am in Christ, the wrath of God was poured upon Christ on my behalf, and now therefore I am justified and called righteous before God, not in and of myself, but in and of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so in this regard, I have overcome the world. I've passed from darkness to light. The blinders that Satan had upon me prior to me becoming a Christian have now been taken off and I can truly see things as they are. I pass from death to life. Though I may physically die, I have the assurance that I will continue on forever forever in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. I've become a new creation in Jesus Christ. The, the, the distortion and the defilement of the sin that was founded there in the garden and that I was born within has now been put aside, has been dealt with through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and now I can become the image of Christ. I can now once again be conformed into the image of Christ because in Him I have overcome the world. I can forgive because now I understand what true forgiveness entails because I've been forgiven by him. I can love because now I first now have discovered what love truly means because I have been loved by God. My pursuit of happiness has been replaced by an internal joy that cannot be displaced by circumstances. I have a peace that surpasses all logical understanding. That even if my circumstances overwhelm me, I can have a peace that surpasses those, uh, those circumstances and defies all logic. I have a hope that I've never had before. And the depth of the despair and the, uh, and, and the loneliness and so forth has been now filled with Christ. I have faith. I can move from that position of eternal pessimism to a position of eternal optimism because God is in control of all things and I know all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I have a strength now that I've never had before and therefore in Christ all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I know that He will return for me. He has not left me an orphan. He has not abandoned me. He will one day return for me. And to guarantee that return, he has given me his spirit as a promise. And so as he says, we have been given this eternal life. 
And this eternal life has allowed us to overcome the world, and we've received this due to our faith. And in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the definitive point of what John is saying. Either you do or you don't. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, you do not. And this is what he is saying to you and I. Eternal life is something that I am confident that if I were to ask 10 different Christians what eternal life means, I would get 10 different answers. Everybody has their own projected understanding of what eternal life means, but God told us very clearly that eternal life is this, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that would be accurate, wouldn't it? For as we said, there will be many who stand before Christ in those days saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And then God is going to turn to him, Christ is going to turn to them and say, I never knew you. And John's now saying that eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I like what one has said about eternal life. Pastor Greg Laurie said this, Eternal life means enjoying the finest moments on earth the way they were intended since in heaven we will finally experience life at its best. It would be more accurate to call our present experience the before life rather than to call what follows the afterlife. You know, isn't that true? We think that this is all that there is. This is the most important thing. And so whatever happens after it, we call it the afterlife. Afterlife has already gone by, you know, it's the leftovers and it's whatever happens next. No, this should be called the before life. This is only a warm up. This is nothing compared to heaven. Nothing. For the believer, this is the worst it's ever going to get. For the non-believer, this is the best it's ever going to get. As John MacArthur then went on to say, in the simplest sense, eternal life means living forever with God It means living forever with God in his glorious, wonderful heaven. That's what it means, being with God. Now there's a warning that I must give at this moment because John gives us this warning. It's found in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That once again encourages us in the line of thinking in which we have sought all morning. But... Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a reality that we as Christians need to understand. The salvation, the deliverance, the leading out of that Christ has provided not only brings us into eternal life, but it allows us to escape the wrath of God that we were destined to experience if we remained in our state of rebellion against God. If we remained in a state of our own attempt to deal with the sin in our lives apart from Jesus Christ. Notice he says it remains on him. This is the position in which you were born into. You need to be born out of it by being born again. And that is the hope that we have in in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we 
as Christians here today in this nation, we minimize this fact. I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up, one of the most terrifying things for me to hear after I had been just an exemplary kid that day was my mom saying to me, just wait till your father comes home. Man, you know, I'd run to my room and start finding magazines and books to put in the back of my pants because I knew that the wrath of Kenneth Benz was coming. And it didn't even matter. My dad wouldn't even ask my mom what I had done. He would come home from a long day at work dealing with people as a principal in the inner city of Chicago, just come home. My mom would say he was at it again, and that was sufficient for my dad. He didn't care. He was just going to deal with it so he could be at the dinner table at 5 o'clock getting his supper. That's what he would do. That's my dad. I was terrified of those words. My mom, I could manipulate. I could get away with things, you know. Mom, you look so pretty today. Oh, thanks, honey. You're still a bad boy, but oh, that's so kind of you. I tried that with my dad. Dad, you look so pretty today. Oh. (laughs) And yet, in all sincerity and in all seriousness, the wrath of God is a punishment of eternal separation from God for all, all, all eternity. In a place that I would not desire my worst enemy to occupy. And that's what remains on people. And we need to understand that. We are guilty before God of horrendous sin. And it's only through Christ that that sin can be dealt with. And once it is dealt with, we can be assured that we have eternal life. 